Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello and welcome back to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan. This is episode 31 and today we are talking to Nathan Lafayette. Nathan Lafayette is probably a name you remember if you're a Vancouver Canuck fan because in his rookie year in 1994 Nathan was traded from the St. Louis Blues to the Vancouver Canucks and they went on a remarkable run to the Stanley Cup final. They went to game seven and Nathan had the tying goal on his stick with six minutes left and happened to hit the goal post. Tough shot uh, by all accounts, uh, never went in. Vancouver lost that game and, and lost the Stanley Cup. And and a lot of people remember Nathan for, for that shot, rightfully or wrongfully. I remember Nathan as being an amazing guy because I played with him at the end of my career, well, the end of his career at Lowell, uh, Lowell Mass for the Lock Monsters. He was on the tail end of a couple concussions, was having a hard time uh, with his head, and uh, now is the last season that he ever played. And I just always thought Nathan was a intelligent guy, a pensive guy, uh, a smart guy, and he also had a really great hockey story. Growing up in Toronto, uh, being traded twice as a junior, a world junior gold medalist, uh, a third-round draft pick, ended up getting getting traded uh three times, two or three times in his first three years in the league, had some knocks. But Nathan also happens to be part black. Uh, and that became the tone for this conversation, although it wasn't intended. Now, we have to remember the current context of our social environment right now with the Jacob Blake shooting. And for those of you maybe listening after the fact, you know, the NHL, players just took a stand to not play playoffs games uh, in honor of the Black Lives Movement. This is also on the tail of Akeem Alou coming forward with some racist remarks by an ex-NHL coach. Uh, this is on the heels of an NHL diversity uh, committee to try and bring equality and, and, and end the game's injustices within, within the walls of hockey. And Nathan turns out to be no stranger uh, to some of these injustices and some of these these experiences that no athlete should have to go through regardless uh, of anything, especially the color of their skin. Nathan, like I said, is now an advocate. He is an eloquent advocate for um, equality, for what needs to change. He is the senior vice president and chief insurance offer, uh, officer at uh, British Columbia so Automobile Association, which is an insurance provider here in British Columbia. Uh, he is in the conversation with, with on the backside of some of these people with the NHL and the NHLPA uh, trying to make things right. And that's where this conversation was really the backbone of this conversation. And I think rightfully so. You know, there these conversations need to happen. And this podcast is a platform for discussion. It is words only. It's not just actions. Like the NHL players here took an action. They were able to use their platform to shine a light on something that they think needs to be talked about. There needs to be a discussion about this. Uh, it can't just be business as usual. And 
that's what this episode here is. This is a conversation from somebody who has experienced it, from someone who is really trying to be as unbiased as he can and wants to move forward so others don't have to experience what he experienced. And uh, he's not throwing anyone under the bus. This, this isn't a whistleblowing conversation. This is about real life stuff and trying to find real life solutions. Uh, Nathan's a gentleman. He's a smart man, and I'm very privileged that he came to this conversation, as you are. And I really hope that you take the time to listen to all of his words and share this episode. If there's, if there's an episode that needs to be shared, it's this one. So first of all, listen. Uh, listen to what we talk about. Uh, understand that there needs to be change. This isn't a political discussion. It's just simply a human rights discussion about having everything be the same as best as we can and acknowledging it from my seat as a white athlete that didn't have the opportunity to necessarily dive in to this discussion until things in 2020 happened. Nathan and I never had this discussion when we played together. Uh, Nathan and I wouldn't have had this discussion five years after we played together. But now Nathan is one comfortable to have the discussion. He knows that it's the right time. He is in the right place to have it. I feel comfortable enough to ask questions about things that I don't know. Uh, and I'm willing to be vulnerable, and hopefully you are too, to become part of the solution. So without further ado, I bring you a conversation that was supposed to be about hockey that turned into being mostly about people, uh, but it's one that I'm glad I have. And uh, I bring you Nathan Lafayette. All right, here we are for episode number 31. Nathan, I can't believe I'm at 31 already, but it's, yeah. it's an yeah, honor yeah. to have you here for, for 31. You're following Chris Osgood, by the way. So, um, yeah, I'm in kind of big shoes to fill, but I know you can yeah. fill them. So I want to welcome you to the program and the podcast, Mr. Nathan Lafayette. Oh, thank you. An ex-teammate of mine from back in Lowell. And in the research, it's so funny, like when I have a chance to look into my guests, uh, sometimes my friends, sometimes teammates, it's like I find out stuff all the time. And I didn't realize that was your last year of hockey. Like maybe I did, but I didn't really like it. I didn't yeah. get it. Right. And uh, that's kind of sad to me because, I mean, you're only 26 years old and you'd done a lot of great things. And I want to get there because I know there was a little bit of, of injuries that were involved in that. And I think that's an important part of the discussion. But uh just with the podcast, I know you've listened to a few of them, few of them early on. I like to talk about kind of the journey, right? Like navigating mm -hmm. the space and all the things that come with it, the good stuff and the bad stuff. But for all of us, it starts kind of back at the grassroots level in wherever it is that we grew up. And I know you're from Mississauga and the GT, the GTA there. And and if you're from Toronto, I mean, you kind of feel that's the center of the hockey universe. What, what was life growing up like for you back in Mississauga? Um, it was, uh, I, I mean, I, I think of it as normal. <laughs> uh, I guess every kid thinks of, you know, where they grew up as normal. Um, looking back, it, it was, um, I mean, there's so much not, not to get, get too high level, um, here, but there, there's, there's, uh, you know, the concept of, of privilege and, and, you know, what, what your, what your norm is, what you're rooted in, in kind of your normal expectancy. Um, where I grew up was a, was a wonderful neighborhood, great things going on uh, from a community standpoint, um, great place to live, large houses, good schools, uh, good amenities. And I just thought that was normal. Um, and uh, certainly through hockey, uh, playing junior and uh, subsequent to that working and, and 
um, seeing different neighborhoods and how different, you know, how differently people can live. Um, I certainly appreciate that. I had it pretty good as a kid. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, I, and I don't know that I completely appreciated that at the time, but certainly have grown to appreciate that as time has gone on. Yeah, it's an interesting topic. Uh, I was like that as well. I mean, I grew up on five acres in Vernon, BC, which, you know, at the time I had no idea like where Vernon would rank in, in the range of anything. Right. But then mm -hmm. hockey took me different places. And every time I came home, I had a greater appreciation for where I grew up and how I grew up um, yeah. because that, yeah, I mean, you're, you're in your environment, but you don't really know another environment. I mean, travel is great and hockey is a great eye opener for that. And I know I can, I can speak to that and, and being grateful. It's like such a thing. I know you're a dad now too. And like, I I'm like mm -hmm. that as well. And we're, we mean, we live on a place that ends in a resort. It's called the Predator Ridge resort. Right. I mean, that's, that's where our yeah. house is, you know, like, People yeah. come here to vacation and like they save their money to come here to spend a week. And, and my boys have the privilege of being able to live here full time. Right. And it's, it's tough. I mean, you want to give the best for your kids, but you want to allow them to understand that, you know what, you better be grateful for this too, you know, and appreciate what you have and, and enjoy what you got. And um, I'm glad you kind of talked about that because it's a, it's a tough balance, isn't it? You know, and now being, being a dad, I'm sure you're probably going through that yourself now. Yeah. You want, you want, you certainly want your kids to be appreciative and, and, have a, a wide kind of perspective on life. And uh, for me, when I went to Cornwall, that was my second stop in junior. And uh, my first stop was Kingston. Um, you know, uh, Kingston has a little bit of grit. Cornwall had a little more grit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the pulp and paper mill, I think, had just shut down or was about to shut down. And, and it was a, a town kind of had lost its identity. And, and um, you know, shops were closing and, and Things were just broken and not kept up. It was through tough economical times. And Cornwall was kind of my first time where I kind of thought, man, you know, it's pretty nice back home in uh, Southern Mississauga. Right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, yeah. No kidding. Yeah. What can we, uh, like, what was the family life like for you? Uh, Mom and dad, like, what did your dad do? Like, what, what was, what was happening in Mississauga if you guys even be there in the first place? So my dad, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, and it's one of those things that, as I get older, I learn more about my parents' history, you know, and my family history. Uh, my dad's part black. My mom is Irish, uh, part Irish. Um, so mixed race family, very relevant to what's going on in the world today. Mm -hmm. um, my dad uh, played in, uh, well, he grew up on a farm in Saskatchewan and all of his family was in Saskatchewan and my wife's, uh, sorry, my, my mom's uh, family is Saskatchewan. And uh, he ended up in Vancouver because he went to the University of Utah on a scholarship. And in those days, to get a scholarship to the States from the farm, like, like not even, you know, metropolitan city in Saskatchewan, but like his, right. his birth certificate says place of birth halfway between Fisk and Herschel, Saskatchewan. So honestly, say that? <laughs> yeah, because that's, that's where the farm is, right? <laughs> like, it's, there's no better way to describe it. Fisk has a population of 35 and Herschel got put on the map recently because of the company that uses the name, uh, you know, the, the grain silo on the bags. Um, but that's where he was born. And, uh, you know, he's a, an amazing athlete. My mom was an amazing athlete. My dad had the high jump record. I remember being like when I was 15 or 16, somebody contacted him and said, hey, your high jump record was broken. <laughs> So he set the record in the in the 60s and it got broken in the 80s in Saskatchewan, something like that, something crazy. 
All right. And he was like jumping into a dirt pit. And uh, so he was an athlete, got a scholarship to the States, um, played at the University of Utah for a year and uh, married my mom. And, you know, this is, you know, I knew the, the story as I knew it as a kid was that uh, and then next year he decided to go to um, Simon Fraser in uh, Vancouver and uh, kind of set up roots in Vancouver. And he went on to uh, sign with the BC Lions and played a year and a half with the BC Lions. Oh, cool. And, you know, it wasn't until I was maybe in my late 20s or 30s that I kind of got a little more color commentary on the the narrative of of what happened with his scholarship because apparently he had a pretty good first year at Utah. They didn't like him marrying my mom, you know, interracial marriage. He, he got married after the first year. And uh, I don't know if they formally pulled his scholarship or, or reneged or, or what, but, you know, like he, he talks about it in a, in a very mature and professional manner and says, look, they, we had a difference of opinion on uh, whether I should get married or not. And I decided to get married and I knew that that would close the door at Utah. So he, he chose love over scholarship, and uh, I respect him for that, and I'm glad he did because that brought me into the world. Right. And uh, so he, uh, he went on to Simon Fraser and, and played there and then played at, uh, for the BC Lions. And uh, my place of birth is actually New Westminster, BC. And then, uh, you know, he, I think when I saw his first contract, it was something like $6,000 a year for the BC Lions, 6,600. Like, like he, when I, when I tell the story, it goes, no, it was 6,600. <laughs> like, <write> <laughs> and uh, he, he tore his knee up and his rehab regimen was to walk. He had to walk like, I don't know, 10 miles a day or something like that was his rehab. So he's, he's a very, um, you know, he's a resourceful person. And he said, well, if I'm going to walk 10 miles a day, I might as well try and sell something door to door so I can get my miles in and maybe make some money. And uh, that's how he got into the insurance industry is he's selling life insurance door to door and he was pretty good at it. And when his knee rehabbed and, and he, uh, I think at that time, Saskatchewan was trying to bring back local talent and he got traded to Saskatchewan and he said, you know what, I think I might stick around here and keep selling life insurance door to door and see where this life insurance thing goes. And wow. So we moved when I was young, like three or four um, from uh, Vancouver to Toronto um, because he got uh, he got moved to um, a head office role with the insurance company he was with. And uh, ironically, I, I kind of got exposed to insurance at the at the kitchen table as time went on. And, and that's where I ended up working post hockey. Right. I was going to say now you, you had it in your blood. Yeah, I had it in my blood. Exactly. That's funny. So, uh, so wow, what a cool story. So he, so he ends up uh, being successful in the insurance industry, which brings you uh, to Mississauga. Was that a, was it a mixed race community there? Uh, kind of a melting pot as Toronto, no, Mary's no, of Toronto can not, not at all. I was, uh, my, you know, the, the, the racial side of, of my youth and my adolescence and my time in the NHL, um, I, I've become much more aware of, um, and, and more comfortable talking about it. And that's, that's a byproduct of what's going on in the world today is it, it hasn't always been a comfortable thing to talk about. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, I, I'm the darkest. I have a brother and a sister. Um, you know, we, when you talk about what, what my childhood was like, I'm the youngest of three. I have a, a sister who's 18 months older than me. 
um, and then a brother who's 18 months older than her. And uh, we were, you know, we're pretty much all the same age now, but at the time it just seemed like there was a huge gap between us, uh, you know, a grade or two. Um, but we got along pretty well. We, we did a lot of things outside. Um, and my brother and I had a, a, a fixation with computers and programming and code. Um, and, you know, I'm a, a, looking back, I was a bit of a computer nerd, you know, sitting in the basement, um, making, uh, you know, little games out of uh, basic programming or C plus programming. Um, so I, I, I had this weird um, balance of, of being super into sports and super into things that a lot of people who are into sports aren't into. Um, so I, so my, my friend group and the people I hung out with were, were, were uh, very different. Um, I kind of had, had not two separate lives, but, but I, you know, not all my friends got along with each other. <laughs> right. So um, yeah. And that's uh, the, 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 the childhood was, I would say pretty much uneventful. Um, but uh, certainly insurance was in the background the whole time. I didn't know it. I didn't, you know, consciously was aware of it. But um, looking back, I, I learned a lot at the kitchen table about it. Sure. So you're growing up, though. So you're growing up in a white neighborhood, uh, mixed race family. You're you're the darkest one at your well, you said it, it was that at your of school. The of the yeah, three. I was, I was, at your I school. was the second darkest in the school. Gotcha. Um, and I was the darkest of uh, my brother, and my sister. My brother kind of takes after my mom a little more on the Irish side, has my dad's size and, and mass. My, my, yeah. my dad plays big, you know, football. He was built for football. Yeah. And my brother probably could have played football if my dad didn't get so uh, broken with his body and, and kind of steer us away from it. Sure. Um, and then uh, I kind of look like my dad, but I'm like a shrunken version of him. <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did that translate, though, Nate, like getting into so let's, let's say so now you're into sports. So you mean you're growing you're growing up in a community where, you know, your skin's a little different color than everybody else. Now you're into sports. Uh, is it was your team at the time then of the same like it wasn't a homogenous scenario. It was it was like white. And then oh, you or like, when did you notice that maybe you're you're different or felt different? The first, it was funny, like, I didn't think I was different. That's the funny thing, right? Like, I just had no awareness around it. Um, and then I remember in high school, we started getting phone calls, like crank calls that were like horribly racist in nature. People saying things and then hanging up. And uh, I picked up one of them. And, and I was like, what is this? like, I, it's not even like I, was, I didn't even know to be offended because I didn't know what they were talking about, right? Like, right. I, I just had no context. And uh, my parents were, were good about it. They explained it to me. And, and I thought, well, that's like, why is it like, such a waste of time? I remember thinking, you know, I have this logical side of my brain where I'm like, why would anyone put time and energy into doing that? Like, it, it makes no sense. Um, but it, it, uh, it, I, I remember it distinctly. I remember talking about it with my sister, too, because I'm like, why, why does that? Why does that even matter to someone? And uh, it, it, as, as my career progressed, I started hearing stuff on the ice. And, uh, you know, I remember my parents was like, should we call the police? And, and, and I remember, you know, the, we just concluded there was nothing that they could do or want to do. And uh, when I started hearing it on the ice, it unfortunately, and I don't, I don't, I'm not pointing the finger, but that mentality of there's nothing you can do about it. It, it kind of carried over. 
You know, like I didn't like, do I tell someone? I remember looking at the ref one time. I'm like, you can't say that. And it's like, well, you know, kind of shrugs his shoulders, no penalty. Uh, I remember I got spit on one time and I'm no like, way. that's, that's like, I'm like, why do I, why do I have to deal with this? It's like, this, this shouldn't be happening. And uh, at the same time, I didn't do anything about it. Like I didn't, I didn't go to anyone. I just, I just felt like it wasn't something you, you, uh, you raise a stink about because then suddenly, you know, it, it might close doors for you. And uh, it's something ironically, I shouldn't even say ironically, but purposefully, I spent some time talking with my daughter. My daughter um, is is incredibly um, focused and has unbelievable perseverance. And she wanted to be a gymnast. And we, my wife and I, weren't ready to get her into a competitive gymnastics stream at a very young age. So we told her, we, we kind of kept delaying and, and putting her off and, and saying, you know, I'm glad you want it, but, you know, not now. And she kept pressing us saying, you know, when, when, what do I have to do to get? I said, look, if you teach yourself how to do the splits, then you can, you can start in a program. And this is a bit of a long story. I know we got a little time, so I'll, I'll, I'll maybe tell because it's, it's, it's such, like, it's such a, I'm so proud of my daughter um, because she figured out how to become a gymnast. She figured out how to get our support so that she could become a gymnast. And she started crazy late at age 10. We took her into the gymnastics studio and I said, I want to sign my daughter up. Like I'm standing beside my daughter at the gymnastics studio. So I want to sign my daughter up for gymnastics. And, and they go, great. We love young gymnasts. Um, here's the application. And when can you bring your daughter back? <laughs> I'm like, uh, no, she, they said, when can you come in with your daughter? I'm like, she's, right here and they look at me and say oh she's too old <laughs> at 10 years old so it took us a while to find a gymnastic studio that would take her as a new gymnast wow and uh, we found one and she embraced it she put in the time the energy the focus and she ended up representing canada in uh, our in um, acrobatic gymnastics um, competed in the world stage and this was within two or three years so she she figures out how to get things done and uh, incredibly proud of her. But the, the relevance here is that gymnastics is rooted in this, you know, you look at what the USA gymnastics program went through, what those gymnasts did at the ESPY awards a couple of years back when they stood on the stage and in, in a, in a, you know, the solidarity around, we're not going to be silent anymore. The abuse they suffered you know, you talk about systemic abuse and, uh, you know, why don't people say anything? When your path to the Olympics goes through one, two or three gatekeepers, and if you piss those gatekeepers off, you're out. You can't say anything. It, like, like it, it's, it, people knew what was happening was wrong, but they also knew parents, you know, I don't think the I, parents were in an incredibly tough position the athletes themselves are in a tough position because if they say anything and become a squeaky wheel, they're pushed to the side and someone else takes their spot. So if your dream is to compete in the Olympics and there's one path and only one path there, that's the system. And if the system won't let you identify things that are, are, are being done that are wrong, um, you know, that to me is the definition of systemic, um, systemic abuse and, and, and problems wrong with the system. 
Mm-hmm. And gymnastics was like that. And, and, you know, the body shaming in gymnastics. And, and my daughter has become pretty vocal and, and pretty outspoken on gymnastics is a great sport, but there are some bad actors in it and there's some bad culture and the culture has got to change. So, you know, very proud of uh, my daughter for, for the stance that she has taken on gymnastics. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's given me motivation to, to no longer be silent on some of the stuff that I've seen and gone through. And, and, you know, full circle, that's what brings us here to this conversation. No, hundred percent. And, and, and I, and I assume that you are saying that there is parallels to what you experienced then as a young athlete, or maybe even as a pro athlete, uh, growing up with the sport of hockey. Yeah, you, there was nowhere to go. And that's, you know, when, when, when you sit down and say, what are we going to do about it? You know, I, I, I think that everybody let, let's, let's assume that everybody acknowledges there has been issues in the past. And the question becomes, what can we do about it? And I think the biggest single change that needs to occur is there needs to be uh, an avenue, an outlet, um, a way to seek help, seek guidance, and, and illuminate what's going on. And that can take on you know, many different shapes in, in my, my life in, in the corporate world. Um, you, know, you think of whistleblower, some of those terms, a little bit toxic and... and um, combative, but the end result is that when people see stuff that is happening in a corporation, especially a public corporation, they have a place to go to shine a light on it. And then someone's aware of it. It's documented and it gets investigated. It may be a false allegation. It may be just the tip of the iceberg, but somebody looks at it and then it becomes the company's problem to address. What are you doing about it? Um, and I think it, it's been too easy in the past. If people had the courage to say something, then the board of directors of the youth organization, the coach, the GM, the agent, um, the, the league itself, they're, they're, it, it becomes too easy for one person to say, yeah, uh, thanks, for, you know, thanks for bringing this to our attention. We're going to look into it. And then nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And it's not documented. And they're not held to task and they're not held accountable. So I think accountability around understanding issues that have been illuminated, that's, that to me is the biggest change that needs to happen. It's not a hockey issue. It's not a, um, it, it, it's, it's a, any sort of governance model. It's in companies, it's in youth organizations, it's in professional leagues, um, it's in political parties. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that is the kind of common thread of what's going on, uh, I think, all around us right now. No, hundred percent. And you, you mean you're very well spoken. You've been in the corporate world for a long time. You know, I wanted to get to you know Scholastic Player of the Year for the entire CHL. So you obviously you have a <laughs> you know you have a good head on your shoulders. Is, is with with the climate now? What's happening with the diversity committee? It, it seems. I mean, and nothing against the guys that are involved. I mean, listen to some of those guys, and they they, they sound really well educated, you know. But I, I I wonder is there is there a place at the table for you? Is that a, something you'd ever you'd ever thought about that be be a part of be a part of the solution? Um, yeah, I would. I, I am figuring out right now how I want to get involved. Um, I'm I've I've made the decision I want to be involved. Um, at uh, my current job, um, the company I work for, uh, the, the two companies I've worked for before, I've been a part of the Inclusion and Diversity Committee. Um, it, it's, 
it's such a, um, a uh, an important area uh, because you want to get you, you want to attract great talent no matter what you run no matter what company you work for organization team whatever it is you want the best talent and in a free agent market the best talent can go wherever they want now that's one of the things i've enjoyed <laughs> on the corporate side uh, the, the idea of free agency i never reached free agency in hockey um, but it's it's one of the things that i struggled with was that i had no control over where i played so if i was in an environment that wasn't um, comfortable and and I'll, I'll give you an example. My first year pro, my dream was to play in the NHL. And, and for anyone out there um, evaluating what their dream is at a young age, if I could go back, I would have changed my dream was to stay in the NHL <laughs> because I got there multiple times. I just had a tough time staying. Um, but being making it to the NHL was my dream. And when I retired and, and I sit with the guys that I played with and, and I talk about my career, one of the most disappointing things I went through was my first year in the NHL. It, it was, it was just a letdown. The actual on ice competitive nature of it was amazingly fulfilling and such a rush, but the experience of living in a hotel for, for two or three months, um, checking out, like I, I you know, my, my first year I was with St. Louis, got called up. Um, just how I was treated by that organization, uh, I, I think it was still an old school approach where they made you, part of the plan was to make you tough and, and make you feel uncomfortable and, and, you know, don't take anything for granted. So I was called up the day I got there, you know, the, the uh, management talked to me and said, look, you know, we don't think you're ready. We got some injuries. We had to call someone up. It ended up being you. You're probably not going to play, you know, but if you do play, you're not going to play a lot. And I'm like, well, okay. Like, I guess, you know, and I was like, I was given number 40 at a time when, you know, nobody was over number 26. Like, yeah. I'm like, and I remember asking like, can I get a lower number? And they're like, kid, you're just, just you know, just be lucky that you get a shirt, you know, you get a Jersey. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll be number 40 then. You know, and uh, they, they the, the the toughest thing there were a few. I mean, the the tough thing that I would talk about at the time was that I would have to check out of the hotel uh, after you know every morning. The, the the you know this is the old school hotel. They slide the thing under your you know the bill under your door, and you know thank you for your stay. You'll be checking out today. Checkout time's eleven. I'm like, ah, you know, the first time it happened, I guess I got sent down. That sucks. You know, so I kind of went to the rink, had all my stuff, practiced. Nobody said anything. Um, after practice, I, I'd be like, okay, um, what's, uh, like, what's happening? <laughs> like, where do I go? You know, I had to check out of the hotel. Like, oh, you had to check out of the hotel. Yeah, we'll, we'll go day to day with the hotel, but you can check back in tonight. I'm like, okay. You know, didn't want to say anything. Like, didn't, you know, didn't want to be the squeaky wheel. And, uh, we'd have a game after the game, I'd go back to the hotel, check out in the morning. And like, so, so for, for two or three months, I was checking out of the hotel every day with all my stuff. When we'd go on the road, I'd take all my stuff. And they just kept telling me, yeah, you're only going to be here another day or two. So, so don't, uh, and I'd get called up and sent down, but same thing over again. And I just never got comfortable. I never felt like I belonged there. 
And the piece that I, you know, so I tell guys, I'd be like, you know, my, my first year didn't go too well. And they say, well, you know, that's, you know, you got to deal with that. And, um, you, you know, you, you should have been grateful that you were there. And I'm like, listen, I, I was happy to be there. And that was part of the problem. I, I, I probably shouldn't have been so happy to, you know, I was playing, I think when they started tracking ice time, I was, I was playing, you know, 38 seconds. <laughs> I had two DN, I forget what it was. DN, there's a DND did not dress and a mm-hmm. DNP did not play, you know, so dressed, but didn't play. So I sat on the bench and, and I, I get it. Like everybody goes through that. Not, not everybody goes through it, but other guys go through it. But I just felt that the organization could have done a better job of making me feel a part of things. And where I, what compounded it was my, there was a racial element to just living in that city and playing in that city. And that was a part that I didn't talk about. I didn't, I didn't talk, you know, I don't blame the organization for that. Uh, you know, at one time I said, look, my car is getting vandalized in the parking lot um, during the games. Can I, you know, can I park somewhere else? And I didn't tell them how it was being vandalized um, because I, I, it just wasn't something you talked about. But it was racial slurs being being written on my car. And I, w- I, I remember them saying, well, listen, you know, Brett Hall doesn't park in a special spot, so you shouldn't park in a special spot. And, and I get it. But going back to my point on there was no outlet there was no one to talk to about certain things i had nowhere to go like i i remember calling my agent my agent said look you know you're you're kind of hanging by a thread up there you probably don't want to say anything and he's probably right but i still don't think what i went through was uh you know anything that anyone should ever have to go through there should be a way to um eliminate that from the experience and I think now with certainly with guys parking in, in fence lots and underground, like it's not an issue, but there's other things like that. I'm sure that that guys have had to go through and I just had to deal with it. And, and, you know, I'd be going home next day, getting the soap and the water out and cleaning my car off and taking it, you know, to get detailed and buffed out. And, you know, three days later, it'd be back. And, and um, you know, I just kept it to myself, dealt with it internally and, and uh, I, I, looking back, certainly that was part of what um, made my first year difficult. Uh, oh my gosh! In, in, in that city, I guess. Do you do you think? And, and let's not forget, you're 20 years old. I mean, you never met, mentioned that. I mean, you're a young yeah. man, right? Like on your own, already been to Peoria, already been called up, right? Going through all this stuff, playing with the likes of Brett Hall and these guys you've, you've watched on TV, you know, like all, all these things are happening to you. And then this is now on top of it. I mean, I can, I can relate to everything, but that, you know, I mean, I can, you know, cause I looked at your story and it's interesting. You're born on February 17th. I'm February 18th. Like some of the teams that we touched are, are similar, like traded your first, your rookie year, um, you know, like I, I can relate on some levels, uh, especially with the uncomfortability, but not from the race perspective and not dealing with that. Like, do you think, and I know it's just, you know, it, it's just a guess if you did have the courage at the time to say, Hey man, they're writing the N word on my car. That that's, that's why I'm here. Do, do you, do you think that might've changed anything? Um, I, I don't, I think for me, it would have been healthier. Because it, it, you know, keeping that bottled in just consumes energy. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's emotionally fatiguing. Um, now, I might have been sent down. 
for other reasons. I might have been sent down for that reason. I might have been deemed, uh, you know, difficult and, and tagged and never played another game in the NHL. I don't know. Um, but I do think that if that were happening today and somebody said something, then I, I truly believe the organization would deal with it in an appropriate manner and it wouldn't affect their career and that they, they would have an outlet to, 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 to get it made right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I, you know, one of the things I regret is that why has it taken me 25 plus years to get comfortable talking about this? I don't know. I, 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 like you said, I was 20 years old when it happened. I can excuse myself for, for not dealing with it face on then, but I feel like at some point I should have become more, more, um, more aware of how my experience could make things better for, for people coming along after me. And uh, I think that's part of why I'm, I'm much more comfortable talking about it now, because I know it's not going to make it worse for anybody. Um, and if it can make it better for one or two guys, even, I, I, I think it, it's, it's certainly worth it. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I mean, that's a cross you shouldn't bear though. I mean, me just listening to that, you know, I can understand where you're coming from and feeling, I wish I could have done more, but yeah, you know, again, speaking from the other side of the fence, meaning a white guy side of the fence, being, being 20, like you're just trying to, like you said, you're just trying to stay there, you know, and you're, yeah. and you are uncomfortable every single second. Like, I mean, at least I was. You know, some guys are in different spots, but when you're called up like that and you're in the fourth line and, you know, you're not the first overall pick and, you know, you might feel like, yeah, I'm going to have a long NHL career. But when you're at the rink, you mean, like, I don't know, it's it's just not a comfortable scenario and you're you're in survival mode. Yeah. And so if you're giving them any other opportunity, whether you're right or wrong in that scenario, thinking what they're going to do with that information, you mean, like, it's just why would you give them that opportunity to, to find a different reason to get rid of you? Yeah. And I I am pretty stubborn. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, that the, the, the filter of the, is this, is this politically the right thing to say? I, I often default to the, no, is it, is it right or wrong? You know, I don't want to look at it with a political lens. I want to look at it with a, with a, a rational, um, lens. And, uh, you know, one of the things I am proud of that year, is there was there was an interesting dynamic going on that season in in St. Louis, um, and I was I was oblivious to it all the time, but Adam Oates was uh, had tremendous chemistry with Brett Hall, and um, they traded Adam Oates, and in return or as part of their the strategic thinking was they brought in Craig Janney, and it just so happened I don't know if it was left shot right shot or what, but Craig Janney had tremendous chemistry with Brendan Shanahan and um, they they had trouble finding a centerman for Hall and I think I I might have spent 10 seconds as a consideration Uh, Jim Montgomery who was uh, I think a Hobie Baker winner or finalist um, he was uh, given heavy consideration and I thought he played pretty well put up some decent numbers but it's it was a difficult hole to fill in Adam Oates. I mean, I don't think there was a a better fit, quite frankly, for Brett Hall at the time in the entire league. So to think someone who's not even in the league is going to come in and fill that hole was, was a big ask. Um, And we, we were, we had some pretty good pieces to the puzzle. And then we had pieces like me who were inconsistent, unproven, kind of in and out of the lineup. 
And the, the nature of how things were dealt with and expressed was a lot of it was done through the paper in, in, you know, in that culture and that team. And I didn't, I didn't think that was appropriate. I didn't like it. I, I had no problem with someone having a problem with me, but I didn't like them telling reporters that they had a problem with me. And I remember like a, a, a stretch where we went into Ottawa and Ottawa, I don't know if you remember, but back in the early nineties, not a strong team. And we lost nine, one. And um, I didn't play. I was a healthy scratch. And like, you never wish ill upon your team, but in, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, geez, nine, one lost to Ottawa. I think it's almost better that I didn't play, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't a part of it. Right. And uh, you know, when you're, when you're a healthy scratch, you, you kind of, you're, you're seen, but not heard um, made a point to go down to the locker room after the game coach came in, wasn't happy with the outcome yelling and screaming. And I was like off in the corner, barely visible, like completely out of the way. Like I made a conscious effort to be off the radar. And sure enough, the coach goes to leave and he goes out the wrong, he goes through the wrong door and he goes into the bathroom, which is a dead end. (laughs) Well, do you know, you know, those moments where the whole team realizes, God, this is going to be funny and I can't (laughs) laugh, you know, like, you know, it's like when the coach kicks the garbage can and breaks his foot. Yeah. And uh, so he, he, he stormed off into the bathroom and we're like, what is he like? He can't just stay in there. Like, what's he going to do? And he comes, like, he's in there too long, right? And I think he realized, he's like, oh, God, what do I do? Like, just one of those, those absolutely comical sideshows to something that was very serious, right? He just took a trip off the team and gave everyone crap. And um, he, he comes out of the washroom and runs into me. And he turns to me, he goes, and you, if you had been in the lineup, we would have lost 12-1. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, I was... I made it safely through this. How did this, like, why did it end like this? And uh, so he stormed off. We come home, we lose another game or something. And, and then there's an article in the paper where, uh, you know, one of the, one of the key veterans, and I, I, I give him full credit for maturing in his career, but at the time he was pretty outspoken in the newspaper. And he said something like, we got, we got 15 guys that belong in the NHL and, and, two or three that should be in the minors and, and the other guys on our lineup shouldn't even be playing professional. And I said to him, I said, look, I, if you have a problem with me and anyone else in this room, I, like talk to us about it, say it to us, say it to like, don't say it through the papers. And, you know, I didn't even finish my sentence. And he's like, what the hell are you saying? You got, you don't belong here. You got, don't talk to me, you know, like, and stormed off. And uh, I went, huh, well, at least I, you know, said my piece. And uh, Murray Barron, I think it was, turns to me and goes, hey, kid, that was pretty ballsy. Pretty ballsy. Probably end your career, but pretty ballsy. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, we played that night. I was a healthy scratch. Um, the team went with 19 skaters, which is very unusual. Um, and I was driving home after the game, and I heard on the radio I'd been traded. And uh, that was that was kind of the the end of a, a week in my career that just had a, so many things go wrong in it. Um, and I was devastated. I got traded out of St. Louis. The team had given up on me. You know, all those things that you've been dealt before. 
Mm-hmm. You, you, the first time it happened to me, I dealt on, I, I focused on all the bad stuff that led to it. Um, but it turned out to be a gateway into the Stanley cup final, you know, three months later. So with, uh, it, it was a good lesson in, you know, half empty, half full, make the, make the best of the situation you're in and don't worry about the past. So sure. I was able to move on pretty quick. Did you, did you intentionally leave that veteran forwards name out of it? Or is that something you'd care to share? Um, you know what? I, I, I intentionally left it out because people change and to, to, to evaluate someone on one story, one snapshot, like I, uh, I've changed. I think I'm a better person today than I was 20 years ago. And I've seen people that I've known over time change and you mature, you gain perspective. Um, I, I think if I went back and reconsidered every decision I've ever made in my life with my current, what I know now, it'd be way different. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't, you know, I'm not angry. I don't hold a uh, grudge or anything. I, I, I actually respect the stories I hear about that person now, I'm like, wow, good for them for, for evolving and developing and, and becoming, um, you know, building their character. Cause that's, that's life, right? You, you change. And yeah. uh, if you're stagnant, then, you know, that's, that's the miss. So, but for you as a 20 year old in that league, going through what you're going through there, there in St. Louis, the checking out of the hotel is just absurd to me too. But then even speaking up and like you said, finding, trying to find your voice with somebody that's on your team, you were rewarded <laughs> laughing with the trade, you know? Yeah. So like, does that reinforce to you at the time that, holy shit, maybe I shouldn't have said anything. Maybe I got to be tighter lipped or maybe I got to watch my back even more like or, or what was the what was the internal message that you that you had from that I don't think I got traded specifically because I said something um, at that moment but I I you know who knows maybe you can have Ron Caron on and <laughs> uh, you know I, I he was a GM at the time and um, I don't know but there is certainly cause and effect in a lot of things you do. And uh, I, 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 I think for me, it was a big mental confidence boost to know that I said something and know that I defended myself. Um, and and I, I was, you know, quite frankly, proud that I spoke up. Good. Um, and is it, did it change my career? Maybe. Um, for better or for worse, I think it was for the better because I got to to be a part of something in Vancouver that was pretty special. And uh, I don't think I would have gotten that opportunity. Um, you know, like at the time when I went to Vancouver, went to Stanley Cup final, I was like, oh, I hope I make it back next year. Or, you know, if not the year after, like I didn't realize like that was a you, you don't get multiple chances at the cup typically in a career. And I didn't realize that at the time. So um, had I, had I played seven years and not had a stop in Vancouver, chances are I wouldn't have gone to a cup. And, and so I, I think it worked out. No, I mean, that's amazing. You know, well, how was that trade? I mean, I was looking, I was looking at your, your hockey DB and I got it in front of me right now. I mean, you ended up playing like your first four years pro you played on 12 different teams. Like, yeah, like that there's like, a term for that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but people don't get like how, like, that's hard to do. You know, like it's hard and you talk about feeling comfortable. 
you talk about feeling settled, like you're a part of something, you know, like you're not a part of something because yeah. you keep changing and you don't get settled and you don't feel a part of the stuff. And, and again, you I mean, I, I, I don't know if I should apologize for having race be such a backbone of this conversation so far, but there's also that element of you now having that race element involved in that, not feeling a part of something, you know, and I spoke to Kevin weeks about it and he said it was always there, like not necessarily, you could touch it and feel it all the time, but it was always there. And now when you're, when you're bouncing around like that, you mean, that's, that's hard to do. And, but how was that? How was that trade? Like that first trade again, I can relate to that. My rookie year being traded. I had no idea about anybody on the Toronto Maple Leafs. I had no idea about anyone in that organization. I had never been in that city before. It was really strange for me to try and to try and manage that mentally, emotionally, physically still play on the ice, you know, like all those things that you're trying to do as a professional athlete while you're trying to navigate your own personal space and your environment. Like it seems, I mean, obviously you got to the cup there, but how were the, how were those initial like first couple of weeks? Like how was the team with you on your arrival? Um, the, the team was great. And I think for me, that was one of the benefits of playing junior hockey is I got traded in junior hockey. And I kid you not, um, I left Kingston. I got on the bus. So King, I, I heard I got traded. Um, I'd gone to Queens for two days <laughs> and, uh, and I got traded. And I packed up my stuff, got on the bus. The team was going on, uh, you know, towards Toronto. And I had, my, I had two dozen sticks. I remember I was, I was so happy because I got a pattern with my name on it. I had my two dozen Sherwoods. I wasn't, like, those are the most precious thing I had, right? Yeah, for sure. And uh, I got on the bus. And the plan was that I would get out on the side of the highway at an, at an overpass uh, out of the snow <laughs> and get off of one bus. The next, the Cornwall bus was playing, like, Kingston was going to, like, Oshawa. And... Uh, Cornwall was going somewhere else in that direction. Cornwall bus comes along and picks me up. So <laughs> I, like, it was, it was a crazy, like it was one of the craziest trades I'd ever been a part of because I, I along, I, I get off the bus and I'm like, all right, see you guys. Like no cell phones. There's no, like, I'm like, okay, I'm at the side of the road. I'm like, are you sure the Cornwall bus is coming? Like, yeah, yeah, they're coming. So sure enough, five minutes later, the Cornwall bus pulls up off the side of the road, throw my stuff underneath. And I remember that, that moment walking onto the bus was both terrifying and exhilarating because I'm like, in my head, I'm, I'm playing through all the factors, right? You know, you know, the bus, there's a, there's a pecking order on the bus. And I'm like, where do I sit? You know, everyone, like the bus is full. Everyone's got their seat. Like there's no, nobody has said, Hey, there's a sign like a reserved seat, Nathan, this is your seat, you know, right. halfway back or anything. Yeah. So I started, I'm thinking, all right, I, you know, second round pick into the O, um, you know, on central scouting list for this year, I'm 17, you know, there's going to, I remember looking at their roster. They had some overage guys, a little older team, not as old as Kingston. I was trying to think of where I was in Kingston. I'm like, I should probably be sitting about halfway back. <laughs> so, so I started walking down the aisle and I'm looking, I'm making eye contact. And one guy blinked. I can't remember who it was. And I looked at him. I said, that's my seat. And he got out. And I'm like, oh, thank God he moved, you know. <laughs> and that was it. 
And then we, we motored on to some other town. And, and I like, I remember getting ready for the game. I'm like, what number am I? Who am I playing with? Like, what position do you guys see me play? Like, like it was just crazy. But um, the team welcomed me there. And when I heard on the radio that I got traded out of St. Louis, I nearly drove off the road. And I went back to the rink and, and I had to track someone down. And what I, what I learned and appreciate is that when you get traded, you are the last to know. Your ticket's been booked. Your, you know, your the, the deal's done. The NHL knows. The receiving team knows. Like everybody knows except you. You are the last person they tell. So nobody wanted to talk to me. Finally, I got to the GM, and uh, you know, he spent thirty seconds telling me there's been a deal, and I left, and and I had a plane ticket the next day, uh, and Vancouver uh, welcomed me with open arms. Um, great bunch of guys. Um, uh, you know, I've used the term super inclusive. You know, I was a part of something right from day one. And, uh, you know, I was a healthy scratch the first three, four games of the playoffs that year. Um, but I still felt a part of something. Um, and then I, I got in the lineup and when we started winning, I knew Pat Quinn was somewhat superstitious. So, it would take a loss to get me out of the lineup. And uh, I managed to get some traction and some playing time and became, was able to contribute on the ice. So uh, that worked out great. Hi there, everybody. Thank you so much for listening today. I am really happy you're here with us for this conversation. And I apologize for interrupting it, but I am very passionate about the subject matter. I am I'm proud of what you're listening to. I'm, I'm proud that Nathan was able to be so vulnerable. I think he's an amazing voice uh, for, for the subject matter. And I think other people, I don't think, I know other people need to hear this conversation. So if we can start the conversation within the hockey community, that's a great place to start it, you know, as it applies to us. So please share what we're talking about here. Share this episode. If there's an episode you you have listened to that I that I encourage you to do something with, it's this one. Put it on your social media. Share it within your minor hockey association. Share, share it with your junior teams. Share it at your schools. Share it on your social media. Uh, talk about it. Get it out there. This is a conversation that matters. It's a conversation that's important. Uh, to everybody. And the more conversations that we have, and the more conversations that it inspires, uh, the better off we are. So once again, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, please subscribe and share. And, uh, and we'll get back, we'll get you back to the conversation. Thank you. That's amazing. Yeah, we, uh, you know, when I looked at that lineup, and I mean, me being from BC, you know, I was I was a well, what was I? That was my draft year, I guess, 94 yeah. when you went. So, I mean, I was out of the house and <clears throat> wasn't necessarily a, a super fan like I was, you know, at a younger age. But there's some big names there. I mean, but the biggest of which was, was Pavel Bure, in my opinion. Um, yeah. He was young and he was a phenomenal player. And uh, what is your, like, how was he one to see on a night to night basis, maybe even in practice. And then two, what was, how did that uh, calibrate with what his personality was like? Yeah, he was, he was, he didn't get the respect he deserved playing on the West coast. Um, there was no, the content didn't flow to the East coast. If you were playing late games, then um, there'd be some highlights, but that was it. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, 
visibility for the stars on the West Coast back then. And he did things. There were two guys that did things from a skill standpoint that stood out more than anybody than I ever, that I ever played with. Uh, Pavel Bure was one with his, the, his ability to maintain speed in traffic. Like this is clutch and grab era and, and to, to gather and maintain speed through traffic while controlling the puck. Um, nobody could do that as well as he could. And the other guy was Alexei Kovalev. Um, he is, he was so skilled with the puck. You couldn't get it off him. And, uh, he, he was, he wasn't in good favor in New York. Um, how, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, we, we think about, you know, um, race being an issue, but certainly back then European Europeans had a tough time, um, in, in, with certain clubs. Um, you know, I, I, I knew I was going through stuff with race, but I also knew the Russian guys were going through stuff and maybe I had a heightened appreciation for it because of what I was seeing on the race side, but, um, the, the Russian guys weren't always treated well. Um, you know, I, I, the one thing about being traded a lot is I had a pretty large sample size, uh, St. Louis, Vancouver, New York, um, and LA. And, uh, you know, you had the way the players treated guys and you had the way the, 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 the organization treated guys. And I, I would certainly, uh, say that the Russian guys were not treated well by by a few of the organizations I played with, uh, played for. Right. Uh, so uh, I think Pavel was treated well in Vancouver. I think Kovalev, um, people struggled with his 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 goal. Like you know his. I've I've heard it described as you know most guys want to control the puck so they can score goals and win games. I think he he liked beating guys one on one. And if he beat five guys, he'd go back and beat the first guy again, you know, and, and, and when he got bored, he'd score a goal, you know, like he was, he was so good with the puck. It was, it was pretty amazing. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard, I, I never played with him. I, I heard that, um, like you said, maybe his goal set, his, his makeup was a little different. Maybe he didn't have the yeah. highest level of work ethic. I mean, I, I can't speak to that personally, but I heard that maybe that was a bit of a knock on him. Whereas I heard, I heard Pavel was the exact opposite that he was, he was a guy that was a bit of a workhorse and, and, uh, and took that side of the game pretty seriously. Yeah, for sure. Um, there were questions about Pavel's commitment. I, I think all of that was, was bogus. Um, everything I saw was a guy who was committed to winning. Um, I think Trevor Linden as a leader in, on that team um, was uh, fantastic, very inclusive. Um, and I think what I appreciate about Trevor is he didn't all the goals. He, I shouldn't say all of them, but he had a, a knack at scoring big goals, kind of like Matt Sundin. Uh, I don't think Matt Sundin, I don't know what his stats were for third period goals or goals in, in a, in a two goal game, like that kind of thing, but I'm sure they stuck out and, and I'm sure that Trevor stuck out as well. All right. Yeah, that's cool. Let's get back to that playoff run. because That's one that's going to, you know, live forever in, in, you know, Vancouver fans' minds. And, and you know, they got they got back to the final there and couldn't get her done against Boston either, yeah. up, up three to two. Um, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there's that there's that one post. And I know that you've talked about it. And I know that, you know, it's been involved in conversations, a part of the Canucks lore now. But when Courtney feeds you that kind of backdoor pass and, you're not on your one timer. You're on your you're on your proper side. You get pretty good yeah. wood on it, 
um, and you hit the post. You know, I mean, six minutes left in the game, you're down, you're down by one. Is that still a piece of what Nathan Lafayette is in the hockey world? And 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 how much of a piece is it? Yeah, I think um, I certainly think that others that is absolutely attached to my legacy. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've recently relocated to, uh, to Vancouver and I've been out golfing with my son. And, uh, if I'm playing golf with someone in their forties or fifties, there's a pretty good chance they recognize me or they recognize the name or they recognize the story for sure. Um, and, uh, it, for me, I think the biggest part of that is that I look at Pat Quinn, I look at um, some of the guys that were so committed to winning and, and played roles that weren't glamorous, you know, like Dave Babich, um, you know, the whole defense core. It, 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 Brownie, I think, was a talented, um, you know, was respected for his his finesse and and offensive ability, but there was no stud defenseman on that team. Yurke Lume, a tremendous human being, um, uh, you know, huge contributor, but in, in Sega, you know, these aren't guys in the eighties and nineties. These are guys a little bit further down on, on Sega 94 kind of performance uh, score. <laughs> um, but they like the thing I, I regret about it. Like I wish it went in. And if it goes in, obviously it's it's a tie game. Who knows what happens? But I I think about what it would have meant um, for some of those guys to have a cup versus a a Western Conference Championship trophy, um, and and that's a piece that I I regret the most. Um, it, it's not uh, it's not a selfish lens of God. I wish I had a Stanley Cup. Absolutely, you know everybody wishes they had one. But at the time, I didn't realize that, like I said, like that, that it doesn't necessarily happen again. Right. Um, I kind of assumed that it would. And that, you know, for Murray Craven, there, there'd, be another, there'd be another chance and some of these other guys. And, and I, I regret that it didn't happen that year for that team because those guys were, were so close. They were so good to me. They were so good to anybody, whether you were, were playing 20 minutes a night or in the press box. There was no bias. Um, and uh, it was such a change from where I was a month before that, you know, three months before that. And uh, I think New York had that same mentality. And it, I, I, I don't think it's, it's a coincidence that New York and Vancouver played in the Stanley Cup in 94. Right. Because when I got traded in New York the next year, it was very similar from a, from a team chemistry standpoint as what I experienced in Vancouver. And uh, then when I went on to play in LA, I think they were on a path to build that, but it wasn't built yet. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, chemistry, culture, these things that are kind of warm and fuzzy uh, sometimes when people talk about them, but they're so important to success of organizations. Um, something certainly that I've gained appreciation for in my life after hockey and my, my business career um, is, is how do you build uh, high-performing teams. And I think chemistry, alignment, and culture are, are the, the foundation of that. 100%. And like you said, those words are ambiguous a little bit, right? Because, you know, the, it's something that we're searching for or, or people claim to be searching for, but but uh, yeah. people have a different way of going about it. But I think that you 
had a stark realization there in the span of one year, what that does feel like. And I've said it in different times in this podcast before that I never played for a team. Well, I shouldn't say that Florida, Florida was good. They went to the finals that one year and they had a, they had a pretty tight unit there, you know, a bunch of journeyman guys that kind of understood and were grateful for where they were yeah. and pretty inclusive. But then at the end of my career, I tried out for Detroit and you know, the legacy they had there, it was a massively different experience. And, uh, and Brad Larson, a past guest on on the on, on the show, unbelievable episode. He talked about being the fourth line guy with the Avalanche uh, the the year that you know when they were good. And he said that he felt like he like Sackick and those guys made him feel like he was one of the most important pieces of the whole puzzle. And yeah. he was playing six seven minutes a night, you know, and uh, and what a difference that made for him, right? That I that I that feeling that I matter, that I belong, that I'm a part of something. Uh, made him give more made him buy in more made him want to do more you know so like yeah. i totally see how you're connecting the dots here because i mean i had that same experience in, in the corporate world when i was uh building hotel teams right like everyone needs to feel a part of something and when they do you're gonna have higher performing higher performing uh you know people are gonna feel better about themselves first of all because there's a human element to this right and then plus you're gonna have the business side of it you're gonna have better results yeah the uh you, you just nailed something which which is a question i get asked um you know from different people in, in different circumstances but you know what does it mean to be a good teammate and you know who's the best teammate you've you've ever played with and i think it's a, it's a it's a pretty specific question right um you know who's the who's the most skilled player i've answered that Bray and, and kovalev you know um, but who is the best teammate and I, I think of what does that mean to be a good teammate in any environment and I think that the simplest definition is a good teammate makes the people around them better. And what you just described as Sakic, I've, I've heard that about him, where he, he just, if you play with him on one of his teams, you become better. And um, that is what's powerful. You know, you building hotel teams, you need your, your weakest link to become better because they're surrounded by good teammates that lift them up and, and you get the most out of every person in every role. And uh, that's, that's not easy to do. It, it's hard to find stats on it. It's hard to find um, any sort of model on it um, from a data standpoint. Um, but it's, it's what sets successful organizations apart from ones that um, might look like they have all the pieces but can't quite get it done. Well, I think, and I mean, the, the narrative now I mean, I'll say with the with the coaches that I think are successful and that are doing good things, Travis Green being one of them, yeah. um, is that the human being, the person behind the player is part of the discussion. It's part of the narrative. It's not even part of it. It's one of like the principal focuses. Because what you just talked about in, in St. Louis was a bit of a dehumanizing experience, right? Like the, like that whole yeah. element, the emotional element of being a hockey player was completely forgotten about and and almost to the opposite effect, as you said, like they almost probably stamped their drum and said, yeah, we're doing this good because we're making this hard on them. Yeah. You know, like, like part of the plan. Yeah, yeah we're doing a favor, you know, like, yeah. and that was definitely what I felt in Toronto too, back in that era, the I mean, development, like development, that was, you know, you develop yourself, right? You either, you either sank or you swim and they would do the best to try and get you to sink. But I think when you start looking at the, when the, the person, I mean, you're seeing that in insurance, I know you are right. He's dealing with the person first 
um, making, getting that trust aspect there, understanding what makes them tick, you know, having them feel included, you are going to have better results. Like it's just a no brainer. And it's, I think that hockey's starting to get there. I think we're a little bit of a dinosaur sport in some aspects when it comes to that, but uh, I'm really happy that that's happening because I think it, it allows a broader bandwidth too of people that, that can approach the game in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Um, so fundamentally important to success uh, at the organizational level. Right. And how do you think, like, if you were to be the GM of a team right now, do you think that starts, like, does that start with the, with who has the C on, on his chest? Does that start with the coach? Does that start with the GM himself or the president? Or, I mean, where do you think that that comes from? How, how would you go about building something like that, that you'd, that you'd be proud of? Um, it's a, it's a great question because I think that it's, um, it has it has to be part of your strategic foundation um, and strategy culture specifically I feel is either consciously shaped or it just happens and you have no control and it becomes something culture exists whether you like it or not yeah. and you either proactively shape it or you leave it to itself to become something and, and if, if it's the latter you're probably not going to like what, where it lands. Um, and I think the organizations that, that strategically and purposefully shape culture um, are successful at, at getting people aligned on their mission, on, on why they exist, on what the priorities are, um, everything. And everything matters, right? It's, it's whether you have, um, you know, I, I think in, in the corporate world right now, you know, that, that's my lens. And, and I, I've... I've made a, a, when I retired from hockey, I purposely distanced myself from, from sport and, you know, sitting around telling hockey stories. And, you know, when I went into the, the meeting room, I wanted to be the, the underwriter, not the ex-hockey player. Um, because I wanted to be taken seriously and I wanted to earn a seat at the table based on, on what I was going to contribute to the, to the agenda today, not, you know, um, telling stories about my past. Um, but I look at organizations in sport that have consciously done things different. And I think the Golden State Warriors are a great example. Um, there, there's a great story, um, a little dated now, a couple of years back, but, but when that ownership, ownership group decided to pursue an NBA team and chose the Golden State Warriors, People were like, like they just thought, man, these tech guys have too much money. They're wasting it on a crappy team, crappy franchise, are paying way too much for it. And what they did that was different is they said, we're going to approach sport, not the George Steinbrenner way, where one guy has all the money and makes all the decisions and you know creates a, a bit of a hostile environment. They're going to, what Golden State did, and there's a great article in the New York Times um, you know, if you search New York, I think it's titled what happens when venture capitalists buy, a, buy an NBA team, something like that. And they, they applied a venture capital organizational model to the Golden State Warriors. And it meant that it was very flat organization. Um, input came from the front line. Um, and there's, there's a great story in it where, you know, Steph Curry was having ankle trouble. And they were, you know, do we go all in on Steph Curry or do we stick with our current guy? Um, 
And one of the trainers was in the room having the discussion on who their you know, anchor superstar was going to be, which was unheard of. And he was also empowered to, to speak up. And, and he said, look, I, I know you guys are worried about Steph Curry, but no one's ever retired because of ankle trouble. Like it doesn't happen. It's, you're making an issue out of nothing. And they were worried that Steph Curry was going to have a shortened career because of his ankles. And uh, it, it just, you know, when, when you ask a question, how would I approach it? It would be a very flat organization that made decisions based on information right from the front line. Um, and it would be a culture of empowerment. You know, it's, 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 it's probably the, the first time where I saw that direct connection between how or, uh, successful sports organizations and successful um, business organizations where you, you, you need to, there's a new different way to run things. And uh, I, I look at my role right now, my job is, isn't to tell people what to do. It's to let people do what they do best and, and move things out of their way so they can do it either more efficiently or quicker or more cleanly. Um, and it's, it's just, my job is to remove waste from the organization, whether it's time spent figuring out things that, that don't matter or pursuing things that aren't strategically important. Um, but that's, that's my job. My job isn't to, to figure out how, what, to, what to say on a, a phone call specifically. We got people that know that inside out and can do that very well. I'm not designing web pages. I'm not uh, you know, designing the, the mobile environment that we're going to operate in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I, I feel like my role in business has essentially been a GM role in sports but just with different players and, and a different game. Um, and that's not something that, that was immediately obvious to me. Um, but as I started to have success in business, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm a curious guy. I thought, why, why is this working? <laughs> right. You know, and that's when I started seeing the parallels. Sure. When you, if we take it back to the arena and back to the ice and, and we're talking about a team, I mean, talent, well, talent in the business world, you I mean, is the exact same. People are looking for talent. You mentioned that earlier, right? Sports organizations are looking for talent. There has been a greater discussion about the person too. And I know mm-hmm. I've said that now a few times, but in in sports, and you even said like that, that Canucks team, there's some good players on it, but it wasn't full of Hall of Famers by any stretch yeah. of the imagination, right? How important is the person, do you think, uh, the character, right? Whatever they're about, you know I mean, whatever, whatever makes them be who they are in the locker room, maybe not on the ice surface. How important is that to a winning culture, to creating something um, special? I, I think it's, it's critically important. And I think the other piece of that conversation is diversity. You need... You can't have 20 of the exact same thing, you know, in, in, a, on, on, in, in a locker room. You need diversity. You need, uh, you know, personally, I'm, my, my emotional roller coaster goes like this. You know, other people, super high, super low. And um, I don't think a, a team of 20 of, of my kind of emotional profile would work. But I also don't think 20 people riding a roller coaster uh, profile would work. And, and I think you need that balance. So 
when you, when you think of inclusion and diversity, um, there's so many different perspectives and layers to it, but it's, it's what drives successful teams. Um, when you look at board of governors, when you, when you look at their, their history, their upbringing, where they went to school, what they studied, if you've got 20 board of governors or, or 10 board of governors that all profile exactly the same, that's a problem. Yeah. And when you have nine, when you have a vacant spot and the nine existing board of governors are looking to fill, they're calling their buddies. They, they know somebody who is a lot like them that can fill that seat. So strategically, you have to make a conscious decision to add diversity to your board of governors. And, and um, you know, the, the idea that strategically, it, it's something that has to be done strategically. And shaping culture is a strategic decision, whether you're a hockey team, a youth organization, um, a Fortune 500 business. If you're not thinking about it strategically and executing it and monitoring it, and measuring it as a strategic element of your business, it's not going to happen. And, and I think your business is going to suffer because of it. So uh, that is a very long-winded, um, maybe indirect answer to your question. How would I do it? I'd do it on a fundamental basis of people and, and diversion and inclusion as a strategy. Scott Nickel, one of my past guests, he said, you can't have everyone be a milk drinker. Is the way is the way that he, <laughs> yeah. he wrote it, which was funny, right? You can't have twenty yeah. milk drinkers. He's like, it it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, though, I think there's a fuzzy line between you know th- that goes on the skill, the physical side of the game. You can't have everybody who wants to toe drag everybody all the time, right? You need some guys who want to bang. You need some guys who like to block some shots, right? Like to build that side of the mm-hmm. physical realm of your team. Uh, would you take then in in saying that the the personality profile of a guy as well and try and build that in and would race also be a part of that diversity? Yeah, I I think it all factors in. Um, I think that you can, I think among like available tow draggers, you'll have some that are selfish, some that are um, too caring, some that are, you know, you, you, you don't, it's not that you need, five toe draggers and five grinders up front you need you you need to think of it as a as a multi i'm getting a little too technical here with my my insurance hat but it's not a single variable equation it's 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 a multi-variable equation um and among available like if you've if you're building a team and you've got a box that you know we need three skilled forwards um you can fill those three spots with an angle of diversity, you can find good human beings among them. I mean, and it's not that, you know, it's hard to find a good human being among hockey talent, but you can, you can evaluate the, the, the human side of all the toe draggers and find the one that's the right fit for your team. Yeah. You know, you don't have to compromise and say, well, it's a toe dragger. So he's going to be selfish. It's, it's, it's it, they're, they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. And there's so many, it happens again and again and again in my conversations, like the people, the people that the guys remember are the guys that were good to them, right? That took care of them somehow that melt, made them feel again, a part of it, made them feel human, made them feel connected. Yeah. Right. And all those organizations, it was the, 
it was the Chris Drapers and and the Kirk Maltbys in in Detroit, right? These guys that were were taking Darren Helm, taking guys like myself underneath their wing to to help them figure out how to do it, inviting them places, right? Like that's stuff that they didn't have to do, you know. But yeah. because they did it, they're memorable. They made them feel a part of things, and I think that yeah, th- those good people, uh, those good people matter. If we, if I was going to bring turn the ship back a little bit here to to the race side and thinking of whether it's a young Nathan Lafayette at 20 or somebody going through it. Now you've talked about like creating a system where you have a voice. Um, Like how does, how would that look? Do you think in a current national hockey league team? And then my head also goes to the support aspect because there needs to be someone to talk to, not only to make the change, but just to deal with the emotional consequences of whatever it is that person's dealing with. How do you how do you think those two co- 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 coexist? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, to have a voice, I think, is a conscious decision that an individual can make. Um, but I think to have an outlet is something a league needs to consciously establish. Um, and it's, you know, it's 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 a lesson learned in, in corporate America where you need a a regulatory kind of, um, you know, internal risk tolerance angle to say we need a a separate independent body where people can reach out either anonymously or with no fear of retribution. And it's tricky because if, if, if if a single event, if there's allegations on a single event in a single city involving specific people, then it's pretty narrow list of who illuminated that issue, right? Um, but as an organization, you can track the frequency, you can track the details around how often is it happening, and you don't have to, you know, depending on the severity of what has occurred, you don't necessarily have to address it within 24 hours, but you can start collecting information where you can know that you know, six months later, look, this has happened three times in three different cities. It's probably happening more. We need to either educate or we need to remind people or we need to um, set uh, governance in place that prevents this from continuing. And, and I think that uh, the leagues are, you know, the, the leagues are moving in this direction. Um, I think there'll be more to come of it in, uh, in, in, you know, I was, I would have said probably six months ago, I would have said in, in the years to come, but now <laughs> maybe in the months or even weeks to come. Okay. Um, and I think that's, that's how you deal with it is you, you give people a safe outlet where they can raise their hand and say, I saw something that wasn't right or something happened to me that wasn't right. Um, and hold the organizations accountable to uh, dealing with it. And I think that's, that's the key is that it's, it can't end with being reported to a person that buries it. Yeah. And I would understand, I'd love to understand how the, how the back office workings of that is, you know, for the NHL to want to do that, but it's, there is going to be organizations are going to be held accountable at some point within that system. Right. And do those organizations have to buy into saying that, yeah, we're going to sign off on this. Right. Because there is, there is some bad actors in the NHL. I mean, it's just, that's the way it is, you know, and there's some organizations that are good and would probably want to be a part of it. I wonder how that's all going to 
flesh out because I see that there's or it sounds like there's some resistance from the NHL and somehow buying in with the diversity committee right now, just hearing yeah. like, you know, what, what Kane's saying and some of these guys that, you know, they want to get something done and they want to work with the NHL, but it sounds like maybe it's not going quite as fluently as they want. How about the support piece, Nathan? Like it, where, I mean, I don't know what support even means. It's going to mean different things to different guys, but like you said, you didn't have a voice, like you, you didn't really, there was no one on the teams that you would talk to. You wouldn't go to the coach. You definitely wouldn't go to the general manager. Uh, your agent was kind of telling you to be quiet. Like if, if let, let's say mom and dad isn't like somebody without a, without a, like a solid familial support system, like how, how would they include that, the NHL, that, that piece, that support piece, that, that outlet? What, what do you think some of the key components would be? Would it have to be anonymous? Would it have to be, you know, like, I don't know. How, how does that look for you? It, it, I think the the biggest piece is it has to be without retribution. Like, there can't be any repercussions. Right. Um, it has to be a, just a, a safe haven of discussion. And there's there's professionals um, that, that specialize in, in helping people through difficult situations. I mean, this pandemic has um, certainly uh, taken a toll on people's mental health. And uh, I remember there was a speaker, man, I, I wish I could remember and give proper credit to, to who said it, but there was some stat that 25%, I'm making this up, but something like 25% of Canadians will be impacted by a mental health issue at some time in their life. And their, their comment basically was, that's such crap, because the reverse of that is that 75% of Canadians will never have a mental health issue at any point ever in their life. And their, their, their point is that everybody at some point in their life suffers a mental health setback of some kind, whether it's the, the death of a loved one or something that happens at work, depression over um, you know, uh, decisions made by family, whatever it might be. Everybody at some point has a mental health issue. So, so their suggestion was that the, the, the reality is that 25% of Canadians at any one point in time are suffering with a mental health issue. You know, that's, that's right. the magnitude of the issue. Yeah. Um, it's not like people never have an issue. So I, I think that people are more comfortable talking about mental health in, in the same way that people are now more comfortable talking about race. Um, and I, and I think that it, like, to me, that's the, shouldn't be the simplest part to figure out um, because that's uh, done in, in, um, in a protected environment and, and not out in the open. And it's intended to help one person deal with one thing, you know, uh, their situation. And that's help that's available now. It's not always easy to access. So I think the solution is to make it super easy to access. Um, and, and allow people to be comfortable accessing it. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Did you ever feel, uh, at the NHL level that race was an issue for you in a locker room? Like, did you, do you have any experiences with not being one of the guys b because of the color? Um, of your it, you know what? It was, there was, uh, my first year was right around the OJ. So there was the OJ chase and then the OJ uh, trial, you know, a couple of years, a year after that, whenever it was. And that was just a crazy, so that was the beginning of the, the um, over exposure and over feed of information 
Um, you know, and, and I think the, 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 the race side of that story played out daily in, in the locker room. Um, you know, I had nicknames that I didn't like that were, were racially, um, I mean, blatant racist, <laughs> you know, let's call it what it is. Um, but I think you also know that the, the last thing you can do is say, Hey guys, I don't like that nickname. Do you mind coming up with a new nickname for me? Like that is, that is how to cement a nickname, right? <laughs> like, right. Oh, you don't like it? Good. We'll call you that more often. Right. You know? And uh, I don't blame any of the guys. I, I don't blame, um, you know, I, I, and then again, I go back, you, you, you take that circumstance and put it today. I don't think any of those guys would be comfortable with those nicknames, comfortable with some of the things that were being said, you know, everybody has evolved and, and we're, we're talking about good human beings that there was just a culture where that was acceptable. And I, and I don't blame any of them. I, I will say this, like when I got traded to New York, um, I like in terms of mental health issues, I struggled with that. Like I, I spent an entire Stanley Cup run in the summer learning to hate those guys. And I got traded there. And it, it was it was worse than finding out I had been traded in the car, like on the radio. Like, like I'm like, where did I get traded to? And they say, oh, you got traded in New York. And I I should have been flattered that they, they liked what they saw the year before and that they wanted me. Um, but I, I struggled. I walked into that room. I looked around and I hated those guys. Um, <laughs> like, I, I mean it, like, like I had learned to hate them. Right. And uh, they accepted me with open arms. It took me probably two games to get over it and comfortable. I played bad in those two games and I was, you know, I was, I was, I dug a hole, but that was the hockey side of it in the room. Those guys were amazing. They were, they were so, it was a veteran squad, so inclusive. Um, and I think even them, they, they were probably, you know, if you if sat down with them, they'd probably say, yeah, you know, I, I probably would have handled some of what was said in the room differently. And I, and that's fine. You know, I, that's, that's the reality. And I, I kind of go back to what I said earlier is what do we do now? What do we do going forward? Mm -hmm. um, this isn't about pointing fingers and, and, you know, looking for, for, for apology. No, this is about what, what can change going forward to make it better. And that's, that's certainly my personal focus. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I that's the, I don't know. I, I would say that's the light of, of all, of all the awfulness that's happening. That's bringing, you know, that that's allowing I mean, even our conversation to happen right now, yeah. you, you know, is, is that people like me, for instance, are having conversations about something that I have never had a conversation about that I've never even necessarily thought about, right? That yeah. was this different for Nathan Lafayette, who I played with in Lowell, I mean, all season, like I did, it didn't even cross my mind that your existence as a hockey player might have been somewhat different, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so, yeah, I mean, so for, for guys like me, I think that's great. And because it's part of the broader conversation now, now we can figure out how younger people don't have to go through that. This shouldn't be part, it shouldn't be part of the existence. And I, and I a hundred percent agree with that. Now the question is, I guess, and that's the hard part is like when the rubber meets the road, how do we actually make that happen? You know? Yeah. Um, and there is going to be policy involved in it. There is going to be education involved in it. There is going to be, a support piece involved in it. I mean, I think that's why it is complex and maybe that's why, hopefully that's why the NHL is, is potentially dragging their feet a little bit because you want to try and get it right. You know, 
yeah. uh, the best you can, you know? And I, I don't know that they're dragging their feet. I, I think it, it's exactly what you said. They're, they're taking their time to make a, a, a powerful and important change. It, 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 I, I respect that they are not simply looking for the, the headline kind of risk mitigation to say, look, we did something. They want to figure out how to do the right thing. Um, and, and I think that's important. It, it doesn't need a quick fix. It needs a, a foundational fix. And if that's going to take a little bit longer, I mean, personally, I'm okay with that because it means you're going to have lasting and permanent change. Yeah. Um, I think the worst thing that could happen is if there was a quick fix that didn't have lasting, didn't have a lasting impact. Right. And I guess the other piece that we, we've talked about, but not really, is that the NHL can do it at once. But if the grassroots levels don't follow and if families don't follow, you know what I mean? Like not everyone gets to go play in the NHL. I mean, of course, you're a professional yeah. athlete having to deal with stuff, but it's it's these kids in Squirt and Adam and Bantam that are playing at a youth level that are having to deal with the stuff that you were talking about growing up that yeah. should never happen, right? Like that's that's where it starts because if if it's become normal, right? And if it's become normalized at that level, now you're in the NHL at 20 and now it's not normal there. And now you have this, it's just, I mean, that's not real, right? I think this is a, there's a life component to what's happening right now. And I think that when the grassroots gets involved in it as well, that now we're really talking about something. And obviously this, this goes way beyond hockey too. This is an all sports thing, right? That it's just yeah. race shouldn't be a part of it anymore. The one stakeholder that we haven't talked about, is is the corporate dollars um the money matters like um i i think i'm i'm past hoping that um on a broad scale organizations do the right thing because it's the right thing um but i certainly have appreciated that companies will do the right thing for their balance sheet and their income statement and corporate dollars impact that more than anything and I think a big success story that we've seen in the past few months is uh, the football team in Washington. They're getting a new name, long overdue. Um, and it's, it, like, it's something they should have done because it was right. It was the right thing to do five years ago. Now it's the right thing to do for their financial statements because corporate America is saying, we're not going to support you anymore. You got to address this. Um, so I do think that, that all stakeholders hold, uh, have a, a part to play in it. But ultimately, the money is what's going to drive the decisions. And I, and I think that organizations can't hide from the money impact anymore. I think that's probably the biggest thing that has changed. So they have to. Um, they have to address it. They have to deal with it. They can't just keep saying, you know, we're, it, 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 a press release isn't going to do it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole different. I mean, I almost get a gross feeling on my stomach thinking about that. I mean, cause it's that cancel culture that's almost developing now, right? Where, Oh, that's like, people don't like this. So now we're not, we're not involved in it anymore because the people don't like it. Like yeah. I, I know, you know, you've said that yourself. I mean, you wish people would do it just because it's right. And because it's part of their ethical backbone of what their company is all about. Um, but I mean, the changes change and, and however we get there, I guess we get there and, 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 those changes are needed and necessary and, and definitely society is going in the right direction now. And obviously it's never a straight line, you know, and we're all trying to figure it out, you know, and we're yeah. going off the tracks a few times, uh, probably the wrong way. Uh, but it, it is what it is. And I think, you know, I appreciate you on hundred percent for having this conversation. I mean, I promised you 90 minutes and we're, and we're done and we barely even touched on your career. But I mean, <laughs> obviously, I mean, I think you feel that way too. I mean, this is, this is more important than hockey you know it, it's the, yeah. the 
the human 101 is, as as my friend Kevin Weeks would call it is is very relevant right now and and uh, you were super eloquent with with where you've come from and what you I mean what you see as the future and and you know I want to be a part of that too and I think that hopefully this conversation and conversations like this are are helping enable that you know helping helping even an understanding I, 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 that is part of it, right? Like, I think the stories you being able to share some of like that, the stories that you shared and to have people that wouldn't have never experienced it themselves, have never spoken with anybody who's experienced that themselves. It's, it starts to become understood, right? And I think yeah. that understanding from a wide range of the population matters. It has to matter if you want to have widespread change. So Again, I thank you, man. That Thank you so much. You were, you were one of the good guys. And, and I, I don't say that saying, hockey doesn't have good guys, but you know, I always thought that you were, which is one of the reasons why I guess we kind of ended up staying in contact, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to, it's nice to be around people. I love, I love this, my platform being able to reconnect with you and, and your family and everything else, know what's going on. And I think that you should be at that table. And I think that your phone should ring because I think you have a valuable voice there. And, and uh, the more guys that understand, the more guys have that corporate understanding, right? The business side of it. How do we actually put this in place? Yeah. Um, the, those are important pieces to have. So um, I hope somebody hears this and gives you a ring because I'd love to. I'd love to have you be a part of that discussion. I appreciate it, and uh, I love what you're doing, and and I love that you're you're willing to talk about these things because the time is now. I mean, it's it's uh, it's been too long. I mentioned that. I wish I had had kind of push this agenda a little earlier, but, uh, I'm, I'm doing it now and, and, uh, happy to, happy to talk more if, if the opportunity presents. That's great. I know. And I think the lens of being a dad kind of changes stuff too, right? When you're caught up in your own thing, um, yeah. somehow we, we can devalue or underestimate even like what we're doing. But now when, when you look at through the eyes of your kids and it's like, I don't want them to have to, or the next kid or the next generation, I want, I want people to learn from our, from your experience, my experience. I think that's, that's a good thing with with age and maturity is that yeah now we we kind of think of it outside of ourselves and that this is this is definitely not necessary for anyone else so again Nathan awesome um awesome to chat with you uh, thanks so much yeah. for your your honesty your vulnerability your eloquence uh, very well versed and and uh, and I know people are going to get a lot from this episode so appreciate your time man all right thank you Thank you so much for listening today uh, to Nathan Lafayette and myself have a conversation about race and about hockey and about hockey and about race and, and about what we can do, hopefully moving forward, to progress not only as a sport but as a, as a society and as a community of humans uh, to make this world a better place. And, and I, I applaud Nathan for his candor for his vulnerability, his eloquence, and his ability to just articulate past experiences that are obviously emotionally charged for him, but deliver them in a way that, you know what, let's move forward from this. Let's move to a different place so that people after me and after my kids don't have to experience some of these things. And we are all experiencing the Black Lives Matter movement I believe, regardless of the color of your skin, in different ways. And for me, within the community of hockey and with the discussions I've been able to have with past teammates like Peter O'Warrell, like Kevin Weeks, like Nathan Lafayette, that now I'm able to see things differently. And that is part of the solution. It really is. 
you know, for for white America to wake up to the injustices, to the differences, to the reality that it's a different experience to walk around not looking the way we look. And when we can just understand that fact and we can get behind the idea that this is real uh, and we have the ability to do something about it, now there's traction, now there's progress. And I do see progress on the way. I think that this is a real movement. I think that there is real change coming. And I encourage you, and hopefully this conversation inspires you to have conversations with your inner circle, with your family, uh, regardless of the color of your skin or the religious background that you choose about the things that we're talking about here today. Uh, actions are obviously the next step and that's what the NHL players here did recently that they, they took an action they took a stand they made a statement by not by choosing not to play games um, but I don't think that underscores or or gives less significance to the fact of words and conversations on a platform like this that the discussions we have matter what we choose to talk about matters and when we when we want to dive in and when we're vulnerable enough to dive in on issues like race, on issues like injustice, you know, the whole, the whole cognizance, uh, cognizance of, of our community changes along with it. And, and I think we need to make the conversation clear, whether you're white, black, brown, that it, it's just, we can't have things operate the way they have been in the past. That it's not something that we can just step aside and overlook and continue on as things are normal. And uh, and like I said, these these conversations are part of that process. So very, very, very thankful, Nathan, for coming on today. I'm thankful for those of you who chose to listen to a conversation that's a little deeper than we usually go here on Up My Hockey. Uh, but I do think it's relevant and I'm happy to be a part of it. And I hope you are too. So as usual, play hard, keep your head up. <laughs>